Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today, we're talking with the Reverend Dr. John Fesco. He is academic dean and associate professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He is also author of a very important book, Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine. This title is available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, John, and welcome to Office Hours. So, John, does everyone think the same thing or the same way about the doctrine of justification? Unfortunately, uh, no, they don't. I wish they did. And, uh, you know, depending on the literature, depending on the person, depending on the denomination, you're going to get a number of different reads on the subject. So uh, there is a quite a different variety of views on it, but the question is, is what's the right view? Is there agreement among, uh, let's say, evangelicals, people who think of themselves as evangelicals, on the doctrine of justification? I think perhaps maybe in previous days there might have been, but uh, these days I'm not as confident on that on that whole issue because I think that a lot of people confuse justification and sanctification, justification being the legal forensic declaration of a righteousness based upon Christ's work and that we receive by faith alone, whereas sanctification is uh, Christ's work through the Spirit in us to transform us and to conform us to His image. In a nutshell, you could say Christ's work for us versus Christ's work in us. And I think a lot of people confuse those two, and they think that somehow they have to work or merit or do enough, be, be holy enough in order to be uh, declared righteous in God's sight. And uh, maybe because of books, say, for example, by Mark Knoll asking the question, is the Reformation over? And more or less he answers yes. Uh, for those types of reasons, because you have evangelicals saying that, that I think the fundamental reason that Protestants historically uh, differentiated themselves from the Roman Catholic Church is drifting away. You use the word uh, declare. Now, if I'm relating to my neighbor and, and I'm going to think of him a certain way, and I want to think of him in relation to what he is in himself, so doesn't it make sense for God to look at us as we are in ourselves and then render a verdict on the basis of what we really are inside? After all, if God doesn't look at us and then render a judgment based on what we are inside, uh, isn't He unjust? Isn't He just making things up? I mean, isn't that the the whole problem of the legal fiction? Are, are, aren't you teaching uh, that God justifies us on the basis of some kind of legal fiction? Well, Basically, I think that if that were the way that things were supposed to go, then none of us would ever be justified, because in one sense, through sin, not only original sin, Adam's sin in the garden, but as well as our own actual sins, we've dug a hole so deep for ourselves that we can't extract ourselves from it. Uh, In fact, I think the whole idea of the need of a Savior uh, implies as well as necessitates the idea that we're incapable of doing it ourselves. If we were capable of doing it ourselves, well, then we wouldn't need a Savior. And so in that sense, we have Christ who condescends to stand in the gap, so to speak, and to save us. But as Paul says there in the third chapter of Romans, God is both just and the justifier, because uh, not only 
Does he, uh, through Christ and in Christ, bear the burden of the guilt uh, and the condemnation that is due to us? But through Christ's perfect righteousness, he stands in our place and is completely obedient to the law of God, and um, that is accredited to us so that when God looks at us, he looks at us in Christ and he sees that holiness and righteousness. And so in that sense, it's, it's not only not a legal fiction because of Christ's imputed righteousness, but also because of what our justification entails, that because we are justified, he will completely save us, he will redeem us, and therefore sanctify us and conform us to Christ's image in that sense. So because we're justified, we will be sanctified. So it's it's not at all uh, a legal fiction in that respect. When, when you say we can't do it, you know, uh, that none of us is would really e- ever able to be justified, doesn't God take into account our intent? If we if our if our heart is in a certain direction, our intent is in a certain direction, doesn't God take that into account and, and then doesn't that sort of add up towards being enough? So I mean if God took into account our intent, couldn't he look at us and say, well yes, I know that so and so didn't obey perfectly, but he intended and if you add that all up, that comes pretty close. Right. Well, I know as you know that that's a nice uh, medieval idea. That was prominent uh, among a number of theologians, Gabriel Biel, uh, or maybe others such as Thomas Aquinas, and the idea being that, sure, God looks at us and grades on a curve, but that's the whole point, is that if we look at the law, the law has no place for error, no place for sin, and it demands perfect, absolutely perfect righteousness, not simply good intention. And so that's what's so uh, crucial about this, and that God's holiness demands absolute perfection, and we're incapable of that. And no matter how well intended it might be, uh, that, of course, is a loaded statement in and of itself, but no matter how well intended it might be, it's still insufficient. It doesn't meet the demands of perfect righteousness. Now, if you say, then, that people are justified on the basis of something that Christ did for them, Mm -hmm. which is reckoned to them, Mm -hmm. which they receive only through trusting in Him, Mm -hmm. if that's what you're saying, how on earth, Fesco... Are you ever going to get anyone to behave himself? I mean, that, that's a formula for rampant antinomianism, that is, uh, violating the law of God, not caring about it. I mean, look at this country, Fesco. It is <laughs> swirling down the drain, and there you are giving people license to call themselves Christians and live, as my uh, grandma Donna used to say, like the Dickens. What, you've got to explain yourself. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I think... Uh... Again, Paul addresses something of that, say, in the sixth chapter of Romans, where he goes and expounds the third, the fourth, and the fifth chapter, basically doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, through his grace alone. And then, of course, the question comes up, well, then, if this is the way things are, well, then why don't I go on sinning? And, of course, Paul says, well, by no means. And then he says, do you not know that those who have, we who have been um, buried with Christ in baptism have been raised to walk in the newness of life? So, in other words, We want to distinguish between justification and sanctification, but understanding that both justification and sanctification is a package deal, and it comes to us through our union with Christ, so long as we recognize that that justification is, as Calvin says, the hinge upon which all religion turns, or the foundation upon which we can build and establish piety before God. And that phrase and that statement is not only something that you find in Calvin, but you find it in others, such as Jerome Zanke. Uh, Francis Junius, uh, one of uh, Arminius's uh, colleagues, but one of his uh, critic critics at the University of Leiden. You find it in Peter Martyr Vermigli. You find it in William Perkins. You find it in a number of Reformed theologians from the 16th and 17th century. 
so that in a, in a sense we can always say this, uh, I am sanctified because I am justified, therefore we will not live um, in, a, in, in a lawless way, in an antinomian way, but we can't flip it around and we can't say uh, I am justified because I'm sanctified. That's to reverse it, that's to say that I'm going to be declared righteous because of my works rather than because of Christ's work for me that I look to by faith and receive that faith as a gift uh, by uh, God's grace in Christ through the Spirit. Now, you said the word alone. Mm -hmm. It's the case that, isn't it, that uh, Rome teaches justification through grace. Isn't this one of the criticisms that ecumenical evangelicals make, those who signed, for example, evangelicals and Catholics together, and others have, have pointed out the fact that you can find Roman Catholics now saying things that sound somewhat Protestant, and evangelicals were able to reach some kind of an accord in the ECT discussions, and Rome has classically taught that we're justified by grace. Why isn't that enough for you? Why are you such a stickler for alone? Well, I think that if we look at the big picture, there are a number of statements that I could make that I think any number of theologians and or denominations would agree to and sign off on. So that, for example, we could say that salvation is by grace. Yes, everybody would agree. I think uh, Roman Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Eastern Orthodox, Reformed, Evangelical would say that salvation is through union with Christ. They would all agree to that statement. So I think what happens is that too many people look at the big picture and they fail to look at the details. And what I like to say is, is depending upon one's context or one's uh, denominational or confessional uh, affirmations, the devil's in the details. So it's not uh, it's by grace, but how is that grace parsed? How, how do we understand it? Because everybody has no problem rejecting the formulations of Pelagius, the 5th century monk that uh, nearly came across the table at the one who read Augustine's famous statement, uh, command what you will and grant what you command, in that everybody says, okay, sure, Pelagius is wrong, but uh, where the, the problem comes in is whether or not we say, well, is it salvation entirely of God's grace, or more specifically, is justification entirely of God's grace, or is it something that we contribute to in some way? And so that's where that important uh, adjective comes in, that important modifier of grace alone or by faith alone, so as to say that our justification is something that is outside of us. It is uh, an alien righteousness, as Luther and other reformers had said. And I think that the best way or one of the ways that I like this to, to state this is John Murray's little statement that our justification is not something that is introspective, that it's not something that we look within ourselves, in other words, to our own good works to somehow accomplish, but rather it is extrospective. It is something that we look outside of ourselves by looking to the person and work of Christ. And so in that respect, as I think you see that in the 14th chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we say it's by faith alone, but it is not a faith that is alone. In other words, that uh, a lively faith always has the fruit of good works. You're listening to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, and we're talking with uh, the Reverend Dr. John Fesco, academic dean and associate professor of systematic theology, about his new book, Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine. Now, you, you just mentioned Westminster Confession, chapter 11, and it lists graces that accompany faith in justification. 
if you ask a Roman Catholic, they will say that faith is a virtue, and it, in a sense, it's composed of those other graces. And then, of course, if you, if you ask the Arminians, they also want to say something like that, that there's something in faith itself. So what's the difference between saying faith alone and making faith a rich, complex thing. For example, recently I, I had a, a communication from someone saying, well, in the Bible, legizomai indicates that there's something in the faith or in the person to whom justification is being reckoned. So what's the difference between that set of views, let's say that range of views, and what you're saying? Sure. I think that it's important to define faith properly and, and biblically. I mean, you see something uh, of a loose definition in the opening verse of Hebrews chapter 11, where faith is uh, hoping upon things unseen. And I think where a lot of the problem comes in is that people will want to define faith as some sort of expression of obedience. In other words, that they want to mix uh, trusting in Christ with obeying Christ and making faith to be defined as something such as faithfulness. Whereas uh, historically, the way that uh, faith has been defined, at least in the Protestant Reformation, again, you see this in Calvin and, and a number of others, that they say that faith consists of three things. It consists of noticia, or the facts. It consists of a sensus, and that comprehending those facts. But then ultimately, it must uh, be uh, fiducia, or it must consist of a trust in those things. Uh, you have, for example, Arminius, classically, who said, no, trust isn't of the essence of faith. Uh, but rather is a fruit of faith. And that's not at all the way that scriptures describe it. It's not just something that is merely intellectual. And so I think that it's so crucial for us to understand that what faith is. And, and for those who would say that, well, if, what if, if, if it means to be that the faith has something in it, and therefore that's what's to be uh, accredited to us as righteousness, it's one thing to say that faith is the ground of our justification versus Christ is the ground of our justification— in one sense, faith is an empty hand, and it has nothing in itself but looks to what somebody else has done. Whereas if somebody says, no, I'm justified because of my faith, that's as if to say, no, it's not that the faith itself has righteousness, but rather it looks to outside of itself to the righteousness of Christ. And so in that sense, you can't define faith as having something uh, or possessing something such as obedience or righteousness. And this is why, again, I like what the Westminster Confession says about faith. I think it's, again, it's in chapter 14 where it says that uh, saving faith receives, rests, um, and uh, accepts uh, the righteousness of Christ. So in other words, faith in that sense is passive. It does not do. It rests. It trusts in what Christ has done. Uh, so I think that that's a very, very important uh, point to make. One of the things that critics will say and have said and I think are saying is, well, you know, listen to Fesco. He's citing uh, this guy and that guy and, and this confessional document and that confessional document. And, you know, we're just—we really want to get back to Scripture. Mm -hmm. You know, we think that the faith has somehow become captive to you know, tradition or even traditionalism. And so we're just going to get back and read the Bible as if no one's ever read it before. And it really— uh, we're going to take sola scriptura seriously, and uh, and that has led us, they'll say, our renewed, fresh reading of Scripture, to challenge the accepted Protestant doctrine of justification. How, how do you answer that criticism? Well, I want to say everyone has a tradition. There is not a single person out there that doesn't have some sort of tradition, no matter how shallow or deep it is. And secondly, you end up with the uh, another issue that comes up, which is, well, what is a confession of faith? And as it's historically been defined, 
I think I could summarize it this way in saying that they are commonly uh, determined exegetical conclusions that we have harvested from the scriptures. And rather than having to decide these things every single generation, we say, well, let's write them down and recognize that they are subject to the authority of scripture and uh, and you you go from there. So understanding the exegetical lifeblood, if you will, that flows through these confessions and catechisms, that's that's what we say is that they're commonly arrived at exegetical conclusions. You know, just an anecdote. It, it's funny. I remember reading an article about a lot of these megachurches who are built around uh, one pastor's personality. And what happens is that as they build other campuses, they end up sending holographic videos to these campuses so that they can have the one pastor preaching at multiple locations at once, and they begin to ask the question, well, how on earth are we going to retain the continuity of our brand of churches uh, beyond uh, the walls of this institution? And they begin, in one sense, to start going in a, well, maybe we should write some of these things down. And so I think that it's funny, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so I think the, the 16th, 17th century reformers uh, going back to the councils of Chalcedon and Nicaea recognized that we need to write these things down, understanding that they're subject to the authority of Scripture, and, uh, and then go from there, and always understanding that we could change them if we decide that they are contrary to Scripture. But I think that really the, like the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the catechisms, the three forms of unity have really stood the test of time and uh, shown themselves to be uh, faithful expositions of the system of doctrine contained within the Scriptures. Well, John, you know, I'm just sitting here, and I'm looking at this copy and of the book, and uh, you've got some extra copies of the book. The SEM has uh, uh, some extra copies. What do you think? You want to give away some of these books? Oh, sure. Let's go ahead and do it. All right. Well, here is uh, the giveaway code for your free copy of Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine. So to get your free copy, this is what you have to do. You need to send an email to officehours at wscal.edu with the code Westminster1647. That's Westminster1647. Be one of the first five listeners to send an email to officehours at wscal.edu, and we'll send you a copy of the book, Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine. In fact, we'll sign these uh, books, and so you'll have a signed copy from the author. Remember, in your email, please send us your name, your surface address, that is your postal address, and your uh, email address. Your name, the code, your surface address, and, of course, your email address. Remember, one winner per household, per season. Thanks for listening to Office Hours, and thanks for playing. There are three other contests, at least, in this first season of Office Hours. We're talking with the Reverend Dr. John Fasco, Academic Dean and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, about his book, Justification, Understanding the Classic Reformed Doctrine. John, what are some of the challenges that the classic Reformed doctrine is facing today, particularly in Reformed and evangelical circles? Well, there are a number. I think we could perhaps start off in the uh, New Testament guild in that, uh, whether we're talking about the new per perspective on Paul or others uh, who look at the uh, New Testament, and they particularly do so, I think, with a view almost exclusively to, to the Apostle Paul. 
And in one sense, there's nothing wrong with looking at one book of the Scriptures or one collection of the books of Scripture, uh, and then going from there to, to extract the doctrine, if you will, that we see therein. But one of the, I think, unchecked assumptions that a lot of well-intending Christians don't recognize is that a lot of these scholars, for example, challenge the Pauline authorship of a number of the Pauline epistles that bear his name. And so what ends up happening is that uh, we end up from the new perspective on Paul, for example, getting a rather truncated view of Paul's teaching. For example, if you read the works of James Dunn, New Testament scholar, he says that, uh, well, we know that Ephesians uh, isn't Pauline, and one of the reasons that he says that is because, well, this author talks about uh, works of the law not as something that is uh, simply circumcision, food laws, and Sabbath, but rather as moral uh, effort on, on the part of the one trying to be saved or justified. And so he says, well, because that's discussed in this epistle, certainly it's not Pauline. And that, I think, really uh, muddies the waters, to say the least. I think another challenge uh, that we find uh, out there today is that um, it's perhaps maybe the same challenge that Paul saw uh, back in his own ministry, and that is um, that in preaching the gospel of Christ, which has at its center the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, is that people say, well, certainly that's too good to be true. Certainly there has to be something <laughs> that I have to do. Certainly there's more uh, that, I have to, that I have to do or, or something that is required of me. And I'm not sure who said it first. I'm sure it's gone and been said before, long before I was ever around. But I really like the phrase that if you don't get the antinomian question, then you haven't rightly preached the gospel. Hmm. Uh, what, what do you mean by that antinomian question? Well, in other words, well, doesn't this mean that people will go on be living lawlessly and sinfully if you forgive their sins, past, present, and future, uh, because they merely believe in Jesus? And I think that that's very true. Uh, Paul gets that, I think, there in the, in the sixth chapter of Romans, and arguably you see that in other places in the Scriptures. And uh, so I think at least off the top of my head, those are perhaps two of the, the greater challenges, and, and perhaps maybe I'd add a third, which is, and it's a sad one, but just people are unfamiliar with the Scriptures. We have a, a fortune cookie view of the Scriptures where people say, just give me my verse for the day, don't let me understand uh, the history, the context uh, that the scriptures are taken as a whole. Say, for example, a lot of people coming from dispensational circles or the left-behind circles, where they think that the gospel is something new to and unique to uh, the uh, the New Testament church. Whereas if you look at Paul, Paul goes all the way back to Genesis 15. And we can also say that the gospel first appears in Genesis 3.15, so that the gospel is almost as old as Adam himself. Mm. Uh, so uh, I think for those reasons, I think we find people not recognizing the need and the importance and the centrality of justification uh, for uh, the understanding of the gospel, really. The Reformation was 500 years ago. Mm -hmm. Has Rome changed her view officially since... For example, Luther was internally condemned. Yeah, this is one of the things that kills me, I think, uh, and one of the reasons why I included a chapter not only on the Eastern Orthodox Church, but also on the Roman Catholic Church, because one of the things you find in the literature, whether it's in the scholarly academic literature, even perhaps in the popular literature, is that, well, let's, you know, let's let bygones be bygones. What are a few uh, burned uh, heretics between friends, especially over 500 years? <laughs> And you see this in Mark Knoll's book where he says, well, certainly, you know, the Council of Trent and its condemnations are, are, are no longer valid, I mean, in the sense that nobody really believes this stuff. You find this in the joint declaration on the doctrine of justification with 
representatives from the Roman Catholic Church and representatives from the Lutheran World Federation, uh, where they say that, uh, well, we look at these things as salutary warnings against one another, but the formulation that we've come up in this joint declaration isn't in view uh, in terms of Trent can't talk about this uh, document, nor do the Protestant uh, confessions and catechisms. And if you study the history of the Roman Catholic Church, and in particular its teachings of not only papal infallibility, uh, which comes around in the 19th century, but more importantly, I think, conciliar infallibility, that is, when the Roman Catholic Church gathers in uh, council to make a, a council decision or a conciliar decision, it does so, the gathering of the bishops, uh, their whatever proclamations that they make are infallible and irreformable. And so in that sense, for those of us who are at least confessionally reformed, or even for our uh, conservative confessional Lutheran brethren, or, or for that matter, any evangelical that holds to the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, those condemnations still stand against us. And Rome has basically declared us anathema. And uh, not only that, but uh, things haven't gotten any better since the, since the 16th century, uh, especially with the proclamations of uh, Vatican II, which was in the 1960s. You find the doctrines of uh, the anonymous Christian, for example, is one of them. Uh, that was, I think, largely uh, championed by Karl Rahner. And the anonymous Christian says, more or less, that if for no fault of your own, if you uh, can't hear the gospel— but nevertheless, you endeavor to live your life as best as you know how with the light that is available to you, well, then you too are saved. It's just you don't realize it, but you are a Christian. Mm. And what even gets worse about this is in Vatican II, and this is documented in the book. And again, I remember the, one of the first times I, I taught this to a class that I taught, they were literally slack-jawed. I mean, they literally slack-jawed, and I heard people gasp for air when I said this, and I read the Vatican II documents that said that Muslims are a part of the plan of salvation mm. because they too hold to the faith of Abraham. And I think that a lot of Roman Catholics, a lot of evangelicals have no clue that this is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And I want to say, you know, if you look at what Paul says about the faith of Abraham, and if you look at what, you know, there in Romans 4, quoting Genesis 15, uh, or you look at uh, Jesus and what he says in John eight fifty six that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Uh, the faith of Abraham is believing in Christ uh, and the seed that was to come, and it's not a generic faith in God. So there's no way that the scriptures are in any way compatible with the Muslim religion in any sense, shape, or form, and yet this is the teaching of Rome. So far from getting any better, Rome has seriously gotten worse. Uh, thereby, I think, I, I could be wrong about this one, but I really think that Rome has become Pelagian at heart, not just mm. simply semi-Pelagian, in mm. other words, saying that salvation is by grace and works, but rather it's just by works if Muslims and quote-unquote anonymous Christians can be saved apart from the gospel of Christ. And it's true, isn't it, that uh, Benedict XVI has reasserted uh, the old Tridentine doctrine, the conciliar official dogmatic teaching. Yes. Uh, it's John Paul II yes. uh, did, did as well. I, and I don't remember if it was Benedict or if it was John Paul that actually went to Trent and said, in effect, here we stand, this is still our doctrine. Yes. And, and uh, isn't it the case that if you look at the Catholic Catechism that was printed and published in 1994, mm -hmm. that it's still saying the same stuff that Trent was saying. In fact, it, it footnotes Trent, right? Yes, absolutely. Not, not only that, but I think that uh, what, you know, with, with, with that issue, I think that is also important is that the Roman Catholic Church has never, 
ever recognized Protestants as consisting of a true church. Mm. They say we're separated brethren, which means individually we are perhaps Christian, but that corporately or uh, together as a whole, we do not constitute a church in their eyes. They have never folded on that point, ever. And, and there have been conciliar documents in recent years that have actually rearticulated that and reasserted that yes. fairly explicitly, it seems to me. Yes. So in that sense, I want to say, I mean, perhaps I could use better imagery, but I feel like, uh, you know, it, it's as if uh, the wolf is saying to Red Riding Hood, sure, come on over and you can uh, join me for a meal. Uh, in other words, they just you know, they don't recognize us. And for whatever reason, Protestants uh, simply are fawning all over uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens with this most recent invitation to uh, disaffected Anglicans that, oh, sure, you can come back to Rome. Uh, I really want to ask, have we forgotten that uh, people died for this doctrine and died for this scriptural teaching at, at the stake and were martyred and, and executed and tortured. Yeah, uh, I can take you to the place on the Broad Street in <laughs> Oxford that's right. marked with, a, with bricks in the shape of a cross where Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley burned uh, sure. f- for the doctrine of justification. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like you want to say, were they simply fools? <laughs> Did they die for absolutely no reason because it was just a little kerfuffle that— uh, misunderstanding, or were they actually dying for the gospel of Christ? And obviously, we believe the latter, and I think that's what I hope is something that can be conveyed by the book here. Well, there is always this um, insinuation that, well, you know, that was their understanding then, and uh, they were unenlightened. We are more enlightened, and so we we see now that the issues are, are different than than they were then. And so then that raises the question, well, is there such a thing as a Christian faith that is true, is revealed, is knowable, or is it simply some sort of reflection of our religious experience? And as our religious experience evolves, then the faith evolves. So that that really gets to the question of of whether there's any such thing as objective Christian truth to which all Christians in all times and all places are are obligated. Well, you have a chapter, or at least a section in the book, that mm-hmm. discusses the Eastern Orthodox mm-hmm. doctrine of justification. That may be something with which readers are unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talk about that for a minute. Sure. I think that that chapter largely originated because I had been reading a few pieces, large in part coming from the uh, from Finland. Uh, they were in English, of course. But uh, coming out of the Finnish school that lo- was looking at uh, Luther, uh, studies coming out of the University of Helsinki, that said that, oh, look at this, Um, Luther believes in union with Christ and even uses language that looks like the language of deification, and deification being uh, the Eastern Orthodox teaching that uh, in our redemption we become uh, gods, I think in a sense with a smaller g, and and there's a variety of views on the subject within the Eastern Orthodox Church. Some people say that, no, it's simply redemption, but I think if you read the writings of, say, Irenaeus, he says, no, the... um, uh, you know, the, the essence of the Holy Spirit mingles or commingles with our essence. So there's a range, and I think that large in part when we're talking about deification, that's what's in view, commingling our essence with the uh, essence of God so that in some sense we become gods with a smaller g. So they said, hey, look at this. This, this is what Luther's been saying, and uh, it's compatible, so gee whiz, why don't we uh, see if we can unite and we maybe we can uh, rejoin these the, these uh, churches that have been separated by more than a thousand years and a lot of uh, acrimony. And so uh, I started looking into it and started doing research, 
and you know, at least vis-a-vis the Roman, or, I'm sorry, vis-a-vis the Luther issue, I always found it interesting that they quote the very early Luther writings, not mm. his more developed, mature thought. And anybody in Luther studies knows there's a very uh, there's a very decided pattern of evolution, if you will, to borrow that, use that word in a non-Darwinian uh, way. But uh, there's an evolution of Luther's thought so that, uh, say, his uh, 1535 uh, commentary on Galatians is somewhat different than his earlier commentary on Galatians because he grows and matures. So they basically ignore what Luther has to say about justification and the importance and the ground of the forensic uh, in our redemption and kind of just go for his earlier statements that in many respects I think are kind of half-baked. But then secondly, uh, again, to say, well, what is it that the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches about uh, redemption? And more specifically, what do they teach about the doctrine of justification? And and I wanted to warn uh, the readers of the book, really, those within and without the, the reform, with, with, within and without reform circles, that uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church teaches something very different from what we are normally accustomed to. And uh, I think there's one quote in there. I think it's from John Meyendorf, a uh, Eastern Orthodox theologian. It's very telling. He says the Eastern Orthodox Church has no real doctrine of justification by faith, unlike you find in the Book of Romans or Galatians. Hmm. <laughs> and I, I I found it to be a stunning admission uh, because if we really ground our teaching in Scripture, then it's a gaping hole uh, in their theology. And so, can we really say? that their theology is compatible with our theology at this point uh, if they don't have a doctrine of justification by faith alone. And so that's what the chapter more or less concludes, that Mm. it's incompatible because they don't follow Scripture at this point. You mentioned the the topic of union with Christ, Mm -hmm. and some have said to me, well, you know, the Reformation was a good start, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Luther made a good start, but they say Calvin had a a different doctrine of justification. Well, yes, he sounded like Luther sometimes, but if you read him carefully and closely, you'll see that, in fact, he articulated something of a different doctrine of justification, and it's really a doctrine of union with Christ that Mm -hmm. separates him from Luther. And so Reformed theology is sort of on one track, and Mm -hmm. Lutheran theology is sort of stuck in the 16th century with this forensic doctrine of justification, whereas Reformed has a more the Reformed uh, doctrine is more mature and has a doctrine of union. And um, sometimes then, uh, if I talk about a a pan-Protestant doctrine of justification, folks look at me like, well, you don't get it. You don't Mm -hmm. understand that there's a distinctly Reformed doctrine of justification. Uh, What do you think of that proposal? Yeah, I I think that... uh, Let's see, how do I want to say this? I I think what I'd want to start is, first of all, is to say that... uh, First, that the Reformed tradition cannot be uh, summarized by the theology of John Calvin alone. Now, that's not to concede that Calvin is making a unique contribution. Uh, I just want to say, though, that I think a lot of people look at Calvin, they isolate him, and they say, okay, well, if this is what Calvin is saying, then ergo, this is equivalent with the Reformed uh, tradition. And so uh, I think on that point, it's so crucial to recognize that Calvin was a second-generation Reformer, that he was one among many, uh, Heinrich Bullinger, uh, uh, Vermigli, or as you like to, to correct me, Vermilia, uh, the Italian uh, reformer. Uh, you also have um, uh, Johannes Alasco, uh, who was a contemporary of Calvin's, uh, Wolfgang Musculus, uh, Pierre Verre. Uh, just there were probably, I don't know, anywhere between 
a dozen to two dozen of other prominent Reformed theologians writing around the same time, and they're all either first or second generation Reformers. And the illustration I like to use is to say that if in 300 years somebody were to say and look at R.C. Sproul's works and say, oh, R.C. Sproul is the Reformed tradition, we would say, well, wait a minute, we appreciate R.C. Sproul, and we understand that he certainly was a prominent voice in the 20th and 21st century, but he certainly cannot be exclusively identified with the tradition. There are so many other Reformed theologians to look at. So that's the first point. I think the second point is to say is that, uh, again, to reiterate a point I made earlier, uh, and this may sound earth-shattering to some, but I, I think the more and more I've done the historical research on it, I, I, I'm really firm in this conclusion that to say that union with Christ is important and crucial uh, is, uh, is a non-sequitur. It's just, it's not a unique category. Uh, you have Roman Catholics who believe in union with Christ. Lutherans believe in union with Christ. Arminius believes in union with Christ. For example, Arminius says that the twofold benefit of, of union with Christ is justification and sanctification. Mm. Uh, and he even signs off on uh, Calvin's definition of justification, in particular on the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He believes in the imputation of the active and passive obedience of Christ and justification. But if you can fall away from your union with Christ, if you can, if there's no perseverance, well then quite obviously, even though he affirms all of the common pieces of a Reformed doctrine of justification and even union with Christ, he's parsing it differently than his Reformed contemporaries and predecessors. And so that's, I think, a second point to note is that, uh, again, the devil's in the details. How do you parse justification? How do you parse sanctification? How is that related to union with Christ? And in this respect, um, it may come as a surprise to many, but uh, Luther, in his mature thought, and I'm reluctant to give away the references at this point because I'm working on a, a broader project, a historical project on union with Christ, and, but nevertheless that Luther says that uh, union with Christ is brought about in the moment of faith. We are united to Christ uh, in faith. He says to, to believe in him is to be united to him. Uh, to be in him and for him to be in us. And that happens in faith, which I think a number of folks have said, that, well, that's something that Calvin says. Well, surprise, surprise, that's something that Luther also says as well. But yet, Luther is still capable of saying that the forensic or that justification is the ground, if you will, or is crucial. And I think that this is where Calvin gets some of this language of that it is the foundation for our piety, Oh, and I, I, I think that piety in this case, uh, pietates in the Latin, is synonymous with the, the life of holiness or with sanctification. Uh, because say, for example, in contrast between Calvin and, and Arminius, uh, you can't fall away, not only because of the doctrine of uh, predestination, but because the active obedience and the passive obedience of Christ is an unbreakable ground beneath the life of the believer. Whereas Arminius has no such same statement in his in his theology of justification, uh, and interestingly enough, Arminius says no. Uh, there's a present justification, and then there's a final justification at mm. the final judgment. So you have to uh, uh, await the outcome. Whereas where it's Luther, whether it's Calvin, uh, whether it is um, even I think it's Martin Chemnitz, I would include in this category another Roman Catholic. The I'm sorry, a Lutheran theologian. Uh, they all say the same thing about justification and even similar things, and I think even same things vis-a-vis -vis the doctrine of union with Christ. So I do think that there is a pan-Protestant doctrine of justification that cuts across 
both uh, Lutheran and Reformed lines. Uh, one more point on this, and then, as you can tell, I think the research is bubbling out of my head here, and I, I probably need to stop, is that it's often been said that, well, no, Calvin doesn't use cause and effect language uh, in his uh, doctrine of justification. Well, he does, and he uses Aristotelian fourfold causality, as do the lion's share of 16th and 17th century Reformed theologians. You see this as well in others where they'll say that uh, sanctification uh, is the consequent of justification or is the effect. Not to say that justification is somehow uh, generative of sanctification. No, mm. they see that union with Christ is, is, is fundamental in this respect, but that rather it's a way of prioritizing justification in the, using the the, the metaphysics of uh, of the day and um, saying that, you know, and you see this, for example, in Francis Junius, uh, again, a contemporary of uh, Arminius. He quotes Augustine, and Augustine says, uh, sanctification is the effect of justification. So even long before Aristotle even came around, you have this prioritization of justification to say that, nope, it's because of Christ's work for me that I am going to be holy, and I cannot turn that around. And so I really think there is, there's much there, and I hope to be able to have some of this research uh, come out in the future. It's uh, it's going to be, I think it's tentatively titled, and in one sense it's a follow-up vo volume to what I'm working on here. It's going to be something like Union with Christ in the Reformed Tradition from 1517 to 1700. Hmm. That's the working title, and as usual, it sounds very boring uh, for that title, most of my titles never make it past the publisher, so we'll see what happens. Well, I'm sure the listener will be looking forward to it, and we're discussing the volume Justification, Understanding the Classic Reform Doctrine with the author, the Reverend Dr. John Fesco, who is Academic Dean and Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Seminary, California. Now, when you were discussing Arminius a minute ago, you mm -hmm. also mentioned that he held to a two-stage doctrine of justification, mm -hmm. and this is a notion that has gained some currency in some segments of the Reformed world. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you mean by a two-stage doctrine of justification, and what should Reformed people who believe the Westminster Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and so forth, what should they think of such a notion? Right. In one sense, I think I want to say that it's very, very, and I'll maybe throw in one more, very uncommon in the Reformed tradition to talk about, in any sense, a two-stage doctrine of justification. And the reason behind that is because Rome talks about a two-stage doctrine of justification, in that you are justified, uh, not by faith alone, but through your baptism initially, and then you have to accumulate and amass enough righteousness so that at the final judgment, you will be finally justified. So I think that you you will see this in that I, I challenge anyone to produce for me out of any of the, the historic Reformed uh, catechisms or confessions a statement of a two-stage doctrine of justification. Now, you will find, for example, uh, language uh, when they talk about the final judgment that believers are going to be manifest uh, or manifested or vindicated uh, as uh, as righteous on the final day. But that is distinct language, and they do not use the language of justification in those categories. Uh, you find this in a comparison when you look at, for example, William Perkins and compare what William Perkins has to say on justification along with uh, uh, Jacob Arminius. And here's the, the, it's, it's a crucial point. Arminius does not say 
that justification secures, leads to, or brings about eternal life. Um, Perkins does. Because in Arminius's formulation, he's still awaiting the outcome. Will the person persevere? Um, will the person sin to such a degree that they will somehow negate their union with Christ and or their justification? You see this, he makes a statement that if David had died at the moment of his adultery with Bathsheba, he would have been damned to hell, is mm. what Arminius says. You cannot find a statement like that anywhere in uh, any the Reformed uh, but you could, confessions. But you could in a Roman Catholic catechism. But you could in a Roman Catholic catechism, exactly. And so uh, you, I, I find that, uh, again, this is what kills me too, you find these types of statements, say, for example, in N.T. Wright, mm. and he likes to boast about his, his Reformed or his Calvinist credentials. And I want to say, well, have you looked at the history of this? And this is why I think— and the answer is no, by yeah, the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the answer is no. You're <laughs> by not, his own testimony. Right, yeah. He has not—he says he's all but ignorant of but a few, but maybe like Calvin and one or two others. And even then, I would really like to say, well, gee whiz, in the last 10 years, you haven't produced a single shred from any 16th or 17th century uh, scholar to, to show or to convince anyone that you've read any of it. Um and so I think that that's so important is that this is what set apart um, the Protestant doctrine from the uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine. And here's an interesting point. I, I don't know how widely read it is, but there's a work by Oxford University Press by a scholar by the name of Daphne Hampson. Mm -hmm. And what Daphne Hampson said, says in this book, and it's it's quite radical, I think, in terms of the conclusions, but I think it's terribly insightful. It's amazingly insightful. And that what she says is she says the reason that Luther's doctrine of justification is incompatible with the Roman Catholic view is because at heart they are rotating on entirely different uh, axes. And that for Rome, justification is a process. Mm -hmm. But as for as Luther, she says, it is eschatological. In other words, that the believer is justified and is declared righteous. In other words, that the Judgment of the final day is brought into the present, and that's how the believer can be assured of his or her standing before the in, in the presence of God. And so she says that this is what separates Luther and more broadly the Protestant doctrine of justification uh, from the Roman Catholic view, process versus definitive once-for-all declaration, in this sense eschatological. And uh, Luther, this was not only his insight, I think, but also those of the 16th and 17th century reformers. So I'm very skittish about a two-stage doctrine of justification. I know that there are some within our circles that uh, have uh, that kind of a construction. They parse it in such a way, I think, that it's within the pale, but I think that it's um, highly uncommon, to say the least, well, and, and you don't, it's not garden variety, and it's not, you're not going to find it that, in very many historic expressions at all. What do you think of the idea, though, of, of saying that in this life you're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but at the judgment, part of the way that you will stand before God and in a sense be retried, mm -hmm. is on intrinsic spirit-wrought sanctity that is the result of union with Christ, so mm -hmm. that part of the ground of your final standing with God will be the imputed righteousness of Christ, mm -hmm. but part of the ground will also be that which was wrought within you, that is your sanctification. Do you think that's within the pale? I don't, uh, because I, I, I don't... Well... Historically, I don't think you can find that in the confessions or the catechisms of the Reformation, uh, three forms of unity, Westminster standards. 
But on the other hand, more fundamentally, exegetically, I really don't think that that's what Paul teaches. Mm. Because I want to say that if if justification is the inbreaking of that declaration from the final judgment into the present, then either it's a complete verdict and therefore eschatological, or it's an incomplete verdict. And if it's an impartial, incomplete verdict, well, then it can't be all that final, it can't be all that definitive, because we have to await the outcome. So really, anyone who's advocating a two-stage doctrine of justification is, in effect, making the the justification that we have in this life provisional. Is that right? In some sense, I, I don't see how that's escaped. Uh, now, maybe somebody can explain it to me in such a way that that they would convince me, but I'm, I'm very dubious about it. And again, I know there's some that do, and I've seen the way that they parse it, and they're, they try to be very careful. I'm just very uncomfortable with it, to say the least. Would it be helpful to say that at the judgment, what has been said of us that we have received in this life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, mm-hmm. will be made manifest and therefore will be vindicated? I mean, isn't it uh, the difference between the way Paul uses the dikaio verb, uh, you know, the, the, that range of, of words, and the way James uses it uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, one being a declaration and mm-hmm. the other being evidence and manifestation of what is true sure. of those who believe. I really like a statement that Francis Turretin says uh, in his Institutes, uh, and he says, uh, we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, but our works, or I'm sorry, let me say this again, but our faith Notice the shift there. Uh, We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, by his grace alone, but our faith is justified by works. So I think that that's a lot of what's going on uh, at the final judgment. Excuse me, when he says justified there, he's meaning really vindicated, uh, manifested, Mm -hmm. uh, and and so he's he's using it in the sense of evidence, not in the sense of declaration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And in one sense, I think this is one of the reasons why I wrote this, the chapter on justification and the final judgment, because uh, I didn't see a whole lot out there. There were uh, statements that you could gather here and there from a number of different authors. But one of the things that I wanted to uh, put before the reader, uh, and I think it's a biblical teaching, is what about the resurrection? What's the significance of that? And I think that what happens is that in the average Protestant mind— in that the average Protestant thinks, well, I'm justified, but I know that I've got to go stand before the judgment seat of Christ, uh, and I guess that means that all my bad things and all my sins are going to be laid out before me, and I hope that there's not going to be a whole lot of people to watch, or I hope it's a private screening, uh, <laughs> and and then they'll, they'll, they'll have my work, my bad works and my sins trotted out before me, and then I'll be declared righteous because of Christ. And I want to say, well, let me back up here for a second, and let me ask a more fundamental question. How do we get to that final judgment? Mm. Well, the the biblical answer is is through the resurrection. And there's a distinct pattern that you see in the writings from the days of the Apostle Paul, and there's a quotation there that says, well, when we're raised from the dead, we're not changed. We go before the final judgment, and if we pass muster, then we're glorified. Whereas that's not the, the way that Paul describes the final judgment. Paul says in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians that we are, in the twinkling of an eye, transformed and glorified. And so what I've historically told my students at this point is I said, without God uttering a single syllable, 
when you see a group of people standing before the throne of God, and without a single word being uttered, you see one that is raised with an unglorified body, and you see another group on the other side with a completely glorified body, without a word being uttered, without a syllable being said, without Christ lifting a finger, what do you immediately know about each group? And the students naturally answer, well, one is justified, the other is not. In other words, if the resurrection was Christ's justification, then what I, what I say is that just, as be, just because it are, as we are justified and raised according to our inner man, what we simply await is not a second declaration of our justification, but rather the public announcement, if you will, by our resurrection of the outer man, uh, of that one declaration that was made in secret uh, in, in you know in our lives by faith, but is now made manifest through the through our uh, resurrection and our glorification, and then whatever follows, whatever evaluation or, or reward follows, is obviously not because of what we've done in the sense that our good works are not counted and are not the reason why we're resurrected. It's because of Christ's good works. Uh, it's because of our justification by faith alone. So in that sense, if I parse it this way, I want to say the reward is the crowning of our sanctification and is not a part of our justification, if I can put it that way. You and I are both pastors, and you and I have sat in counseling rooms with with doubting sinners, mm -hmm. and they've said to me and to you, Pastor, I, I just don't know if I'm right with God. Mm -hmm. Someone's listening to this today, and they're they're just thinking, "Boy, this all seems so complicated." And and uh, I've heard people saying both things. I've heard good people whom I you know have been taught to to trust and believe, and yet I've heard them say things that don't sound like what Fesco just said. Mm -hmm. And I I just don't know anymore what to think. What what do you say to that person? What what what's the gospel? Sure, uh, I think that at least in a nutshell, the gospel is is that. By believing in Christ, you are saved. Always? Always and forever. Even you at the last saved. day? Even at the last day. And I, I, one of the most uh, reassuring passages of Scripture to me, as, that I, as, as I'm sure is to you and many others, is Romans 5, where specifically there in verses uh, 12 through 21, uh, or perhaps 19, depending on how you look at it, uh, Paul says there that one act of disobedience led to condemnation— uh, but one act of righteousness led to justification. Uh, or he says, one disobedience leads to condemnation, one leads to eternal life, to life and eternal. Uh, so, and it's the, the free gift of God's grace in Christ, so that it is Christ's work uh, in our justification that we receive in justification that secures for us eternal life. Uh, and uh, one of the things I love about what the Westminster Confession of Faith says is that saving faith— no matter how strong or weak, is still saving faith, mm -hmm. and it's God-given, so that if you fear going before the judgment seat of Christ, don't, because we don't go before our judge. Instead, we go before the presence of our Father, and we go beneath the wings of our brother. Uh, and so we stand, we can go to the final judgment knowing that uh, we are saved, that we're justified, uh, that we're not going uh, before the judge worrying about the final outcome because the outcome has already been declared here in the present. I think Scripture said something like, there is now therefore no right. condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical 
assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash office hours. That's wscal.edu slash office hours. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. We want to hear from you. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.